Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi, I'm Danny Webster and welcome to Cross Section. Since Cross Section was last in your podcast feed back in June, one major change has happened in our world. Joe Evans has left us. We're always a little bit sad when a colleague moves on, but when it's the person who holds together our little podcast endeavour, it's particularly challenging. And to be honest, we're recording this and then we are hoping that it somehow gets to you. If you're hearing this, then we've probably managed to navigate that first hurdle, probably with the necessary assistance of our producer supporter, Chris Ringland. Um, I'm here today as autumn starts to get underway with Alicia and Peter. And we're going to dive into some of the stories that have made the news and look at how we navigate the cross section of faith, news and culture. As I say, summer is disappearing quickly into the rearview mirror. Although, having had that disappointing summer of weather, I was very happy to have saved my time off for last week. I was in the Splash Park at Legoland on Friday in 30 plus degree heat, and it was a swarm of feral toddlers. That's all I can say. It was it was chaos, and only two of them were mine. And actually, this week I had to explain to my daughter that we weren't going on holiday again anytime soon, and then she engaged in the negotiations by insisting that we go on two holidays next year. Alicia, what was your highlight of the summer? Yeah, I guess mine was the 36 hour power trip to Milan and Lake Como, which was good fun. Uh, Impromptu visit, great break. Italy was beautifully hot, beautifully warm. Lake Como was a dream. It was nice to swim in there before catching a flight back to the UK. So I guess that's my mini highlight for the summer a mini break to Italy and Peter where have you been what have you been up to uh, well yes uh, it's been a good summer I have to confess but uh, the most recent trip uh, was to Bordeaux uh, to watch some rugby world cup with 11 other families 45 people in our party it was carnage uh, we watched Ireland uh, gloriously defeat Romania 80 points to eight and Wales Fiji was a real nail better of a match some classic rugby so, yeah, definite highlight. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the Rugby World Cup, on which there may be more commentary as Ireland are the number one team in the world. I may have to swat up on my rugby knowledge. It's possibly even lower than my football knowledge. As we're recording, England are currently going well against New Zealand in the cricket. <laughs> so, so on to our stories for this week. The first thing we want to look at is the questions around relationship, sex, health, education. Over the last six months or so, there have been a lot of headlines about what's being taught in schools, whether it's appropriate, whether parents know enough about this. And we've heard directly from parents who are concerned about what children are learning. We've heard from teachers unhappy about what they are being asked to teach. And alongside this, there's been more scrutiny about how church, how schools, not churches, how schools navigate pupils who wish to identify as, as a gender other than their biological sex. What do they do about that? Do they tell the parents? Well, Alicia, could you tell us what's happening around the UK in terms of relationships, sex and health education? 
Uh, I will attempt and try. Mm -hmm. It's very dynamic conversation across uh, four nations and each nation takes a different look and focus. So starting with Northern Ireland, uh, in June, the um, Northern Ireland Secretary published a statement saying that the government will be reviewing and encouraging an update to the relationship and sex education in Northern Ireland. Specifically, it's targeting and it's the language around age-appropriate, comprehensive, scientifically accurate education around sexual and reproductive health, covering issues of early pregnancy and access to abortion. So very much a live conversation. And there is a public consultation that closes on the 24th of November. And the government will be updating its guidelines in January of next year. So that's Northern Ireland. Moving on to Scotland, Scotland also has a public consultation and a review of its relationship and sexual health and parenthood guidance that was originally written in 2014. And again, this is an opportunity for parents, for those within Scotland to contribute their ideas, thoughts on what that guidance should look like. And interestingly, they're wanting the guidance to focus on an area of faith and belief. So the team will definitely be updating member organisations in Scotland in how to engage. And that consultation closes on the 23rd of November. And in England, there is rumours of a review of what's taking place in relationships, sex and health education. This has been a conversation for the past six months. And at this moment, we are waiting for that review to be made public for us to input to. But at the moment, there has been the most recent story that the kind of independent expert panel to the government that are providing kind of their assessment on the materials that are going into schools will not be publishing their early findings. So we'll definitely keep members update on when that consultation goes live. And Peter, both in the area of RSE, but also relating to how they navigate questions around trans, what are the things that schools need to be considering? I think it's a really tough question for schools. So schools aren't equipped to do this. I think it's a really unfair burden that's being placed upon them. And that's, I mean, the government are in a bit of a mess around this. I think we would probably suggest, I certainly will, that there are different voices already You're reading stories that Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, wants to do one thing. Kami Badnock, the Equalities Minister, wants to do another. Julian Keegan, the Education Minister, has a slightly different view, it appears. And they're all trying to get advice and work it out. They can't decide. They're trying to decide, is it mainly medical? Do schools have to rely on what the NHS tell them? Is it up to the parents? Is it up to the child? And the schools are having to navigate that. So firstly, I think it's really unfair on schools. I think you just need to be blunt about that. And they're being put in the firing line. Some schools aren't helping themselves. Some schools and teachers have an agenda. Um, and we need to be alert to that. I mean, I, I'm really a fan of Miriam Kate's a piece of legislation she's trying to bring through that really says on areas of RSE and all these areas, a parent should have the right to know. This was based on a case where a parent asked to see what their child was being taught in RSE. And due to commercial interest, they weren't even allowed to see that. Uh, and I think that's linked to our question here. Our parents have primary responsibility for kids. Therefore, they should have the right to know what's going on. And the idea that a kid could be socially transitioned, i.e. the school would start to use their name and allow them to change the uniform without telling parents, I can see no way in which that's justifiable. And that's the view of a number of government ministers who are quite outspoken about this. And they also want to prevent teachers from being compelled to use a name simply because the child is socially transitioned course this is complicated because for some children this is very key to their identity we want to be a little sensitive to that 
but realize there's massively complex factors running in behind here and that young children and even teenage children are not in a position, in my view, and I've written and researched a fair bit on this, to make those kind of decisions on their own. And the beginning of social transitioning often leads on to more change. So very unfair on schools. I think we do need to be super cautious and the government seems to have moved to a much more cautious position. Even if you compare that globally, traveling recently in the States and speaking to people from Australia and America, very different views. Canada, very problematic. So actually Britain's view overall is not that bad. We, I certainly would like to see that tightened up a little bit and definitely giving the parents the primary role and responsibility in this conversation as they have at law and everything else. So, yeah, one of the one of the dilemmas here is how you navigate both the parents and the school, but also the local school or the local authority and the national curriculum, because in some ways it's better for schools to have the freedom and the independence to determine their own curriculum. But that's a good opportunity for people to input into it and to help that be developed in positive ways. But if it goes wrong, suddenly you hear these calls for much stronger national criteria about what the curriculum is. But then if the national curriculum is unhelpful, people complain about this. So it feels like what if it goes well, people want it locally. And then if it goes badly, they want it nationally until that goes wrong as well. And I don't think there's any perfect solution there. Well, it's been described as the Wild West, I think, by one of the MPs. And it is a problem because school, most teachers don't want to teach on this or get into the details. It's not their area of expertise. They have to do something, so they outsource it. And they could outsource it to, there are some Christian groups in the space, there are some very pro-LGBT groups, there are all sorts of commercial organizations provide this. And that's part of the weirdness of this. You basically bring in an outside body to teach them something that's very value-orientated. But it is a role for parents to get involved. And one of the things I'd certainly say to Christian parents is there's, there's a certain sense of feeling maybe overwhelmed and powerless. And I always push back and say, hold on, as a parent myself of a teenage daughter uh, and a 10-year-old as well, like I and my wife, we're the primary sources of input around relationships. So we need to lead on that. Then our church community through youth groups and sort of camps that we're sending them to and other things that they're involved in should be the second voice in that. They're not always, and we're trying to encourage them to say more. You can't abdicate on this. And then the school should be the third voice. It's definitely going to say something. If we elect to say nothing as parents and as churches, then we leave the school as the only voice. Then, frankly, we deserve what we get. I'm sorry, but we need to be blunt. <laughs> we need to get, like, we need to wise up as Christians and say this is fundamentally important and we are going to talk about it and lead in the conversation. And I'm telling my kids probably something different than they're going to learn in school, and that's okay. And then hopefully the church is reinforcing that message and youth groups, and then they hear something different in school. Now, depending on their friendship groups, I've spoken to young people who feel more empowered to push back in school, and parents who do, others who are quiet, but they've taken a different perspective. They hear the thing in school and can kind of ignore it. And it's not that it's all wrong or bad, but they need to have other sources coming in. If we abdicate and only leave the schools as a voice, then in one sense, we deserve to some extent what we get. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't campaign for change, but it's not realistic to think that schools are going to teach all that I want them to teach in this moment. That's my job as a parent and as a church community leader. So the, the Evangelical Alliance has produced Time to Talk, which is a publication to help parents navigate some of these conversations. And as the parent of much younger children, 
it doesn't start too early. I have a three-year-old daughter who's fascinated about how she's different to her brother. So the conversations start early. Um, we are also hosting a webinar on the 25th of September, uh, looking at the topic all about bodies. And we're joined on that webinar with Ed Drew from Faith in Kids. You can sign up on our website. We'll include the, the link to both our publication and the webinar in the show notes for this podcast. Now we're gonna take a handbrake turn in our stories on this podcast. And this is all Peter's fault, this one. When we were talking about what we're going to discuss on this podcast, Peter was like, Barbie! So Peter, why was this one of your summer highlights? I love the Barbie movie. I think this is cracker. I mean, I've got my, so my daughters went to see it, my wife wanted to see it, and my mom wanted to see it. So I was like, well, I'm not getting left out. And I'd heard people say this is anti-men, it's male bashing, it's whatever, programs. It's a satire, in my view, that takes like a good dose of poking fun at both feminism and the patriarchy, and rightly so in both cases. It asks the fundamental question, what does it mean to be human? Essentially, Barbie's journey to become human does it through a biblical analogy. And I've written about this, and you can Google a piece I've written uh, around like some of the biblical insights into it. But I think it asks the profound and fundamental question, what's a woman that our politicians don't want to answer? What's a man? What does it mean to be human? And it's a really interesting kind of thought-provoking, fun satire that actually gets us asking some of the big questions. Right. I haven't seen it. I don't think Alicia has either. No, I'm Team Oppenheimer. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, come on. Well, then, no, no. So, I, but I, I love that it springs into conversation. So I don't, I'll not dominate too much in this, but I did think it was a fun movie and it did ask. And it's got this twist at the end. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want to see it, then switch off for a one minute. But I do want to tell this little story because I had a lot of Christians saying to me, oh, it's awful and you shouldn't be going. I said, have you seen it? No, we just think we shouldn't. And I was like, well, I'm not scared of culture that way. I actually think this is a great conversation starter. But at the end, Barbie goes through a bit of a journey, if you like, uh, there's a creation story around her. There's a there's a fall story about her overwhelming thoughts of death. There's a redemption moment of white savior Barbie. And then there's like, well, what does the new creation look like for this Barbie? What is the end of the story? And uh, she drives up, pulls outside an office. This is the spoiler alert for sure. Turn off if you don't want to know. But she pulls up and you're thinking, is she going to get a driver's license? Is she going to get a job? Like what is, what is fulfillment for Barbie? And she walks in and she goes up to a receptionist and says, I'm here to see my gynecologist. And I think in this cultural moment, that's a fascinating little thing. To be a fully human female, she has to go and see her gynecologist. That's kind of at odds with what our culture is saying. I think there's a really subtle dig there that this is uh, kind of reaffirming what it is to be a woman. So, I mean, there's lots of plays on it, lots of interesting little bits. I can off, I've got the hoodie. If you've seen the movie, dressed in pink, got my big sheepskin coat that Ken has. It's playing and poking fun. It's what satire is supposed to do. And, and I think it asks great questions. I'd encourage people to go and see it with an open mind, but use it to ask the conversation, have the conversation with your friends about some of these big questions. I think you've sold it to me. I'm not sure it's going to be my next cinema trip. I think that's probably going to be the Paul Petrov sequel that's coming out soon. Oh, Danny. Uh, yeah, that, that'll be what I get to look forward to. And let's see, you noted something. Greta Gerberg, the the director, she's one of the... I know, most highly lauded directors working in the moment. And it's been announced that she's going to be directing Netflix's adaptation of the Narnia stories. You have some concerns. 
I have some concerns, but not on her directing ability, as I do think she's a great film maker. Having watched other films like Lady Bird and Little Women adaptation, I just, and I need to admit, I haven't seen the Barbie and I haven't read the Chronicles of Narnia. I know some Christians listening on this call is like, oh my goodness. The Chronicles of Narnia do not feature in Exodus or Deuteronomy. But anyway, I will, I will watch it. But my concern is how is she able to reenact, recreate two of the films from Chronicle of Narnia and not focus on the, the centerpiece story, which is Christ in it and I would be enraged I'm already upset that Netflix own the rights to make this series but I will be enraged even though I haven't read it I'm a very huge C.S. Lewis fan if Greta pulls out or kind of dilutes kind of the spiritual message behind that so far nothing that she has said or created makes me think that she's a Christian but she's definitely engaged in the spiritual conversations and themes around creation, redemption, forgiveness, identity. So I'm slightly concerned. I would have liked a Christian director filmmaker to be reproducing that on a, a big stage in a while. I'll be honest, I'm mostly concerned that you haven't read the books. That, that is... I, there are reasons that I can't reveal those. This is not a Like Narnia was so foundational to my childhood, the BBC adaptations, we had them recorded on VHS and if it was a wet day or if we were off sick from school, they were what we watched. And my sister wanted to be Lucy. I think I also wanted to be Edmund, which was probably slightly (laughs) less less noble. John Kurtz written a really interesting piece um, around this, just, well, addressing some of the questions that he has about how Greta Gerwig will navigate it but and he's basically two of his points are to embrace the spirituality within it and then to make sure that Aslan is at the center of the story because there's there's always a a risk of trying to find other ways to make the plot more exciting I know some of the Disney adaptations a few years ago I think it was the Voyage of the Dawn Treader that they introduced a whole new plot into that well was a bit weird to be honest so I, I think it's a tough gig I actually think having someone who's not a Christian wrestling with these stories and bringing them to a new audience is a fascinating opportunity just to see what she does with it and to see how that message reaches a, well, reaches a fresh audience. And, and in one sense, it's the old, you know, no news, what is it? No publicity is bad. No, what is it? Bad publicity? No publicity. I've lost a train of that thought, you know, but basically. No publicity even- is bad publicity. Yeah, well, so I know, but it's the other way. Like if people are talking about you, no matter what they're saying, like the reality is it's going to get people talking about this story. So I didn't realize she was doing it until you guys flagged it for the show. Uh, some of the recent adaptations have been so-so. I mean, I remember the BBC one, but now looking back, it did try and remove the spiritual element. Disney played around with it a bit. But the reality is C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien are the ultimate, that what this what this podcast is about, cross-section, bringing faith right to the heart of culture. And they are two of the, biggest cultural stories of the last 100 years that still dominate so even if people mess it up everybody comments on why and if they do it well they comment on why and no matter what you do with lewis and this is some people's critique but i love him he's so obvious you can't get around it you can't feel to no matter what you do with aslan you gotta rest with the fact that he is <laughs> good but not safe that he is clearly the god like the god creature of this story and it is the opening to the great story and so I love that this is sitting at the heart of culture and still is. And as a big filmmaker, you can't but take on this story because it's so good. 
So, I mean, that's a model we all want to go after. That was a phenomenal way to shape culture for 100 years by Lewis and Tolkien. Well, you can continue the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter at EAUK News, on Instagram at Evangelical Alliance, and do email us with your thoughts, your questions, your requests. What stories do you want us to be talking about? What do you think of what we've said? Email us at cross.section at eauk.org. Another, the final story that we're going to talk about on this episode is the situation with Soul Survivor and Mike Pulavacci. It's fair to say that Mike Pulavacci is one of the best known Christian figures in the UK. The reach of the Soul Survivor festivals and wider ministry mean that for most of the charismatic evangelical church, this news was highly significant, hugely significant, and speaking personally, a complete shock. Earlier in the year, reports of allegations of abuse were made and an investigation by the Church of England safeguarding team was commissioned. Last week, this investigation reported back and substantiated the claims, and it concluded that he used his spiritual authority to control people and that his coercive and controlling behaviour led to inappropriate relationships, the physical wrestling of youths and massaging of young male interns. Now, like many over the last few months, we've been following and been interested in the story, but we've we've hesitated from commenting because we have wanted the investigation to run its course, for victims to be heard, and for that process to work its way out. And while the report back from the safeguarding team is a significant milestone in this process, it is only part of the way into providing some of the answers. Soul Survivor have now commissioned a separate independent investigation led by a leading barrister. And the details of this are still to be worked out. Um, but the church have committed to publishing this report in full uh, from this independent barrister and implementing her recommendations. Um, Peter, can I come to you? How can we respond to this situation and what the, the Church of England investigation found? I think you're right. It's uh, with incredible difficulty and sensitivity. We absolutely need to recognize those who are victims in this situation. I think it's over 100 have come forward and uh, some are more prominent in public and have, and have put their names to it. And so they are going to be continuing to wrestling with the abuse that they suffered. And so we need to be praying for them, remembering them. We may be in a position to more directly help people. I mean, I'm coming from outside of England where I think Mike's influence was UK-wide and global, but even more significant within the English church context and just having conversations within our own staff team and, and friends in England, you just realize how almost everybody was impacted by Mike. And then, you know, Gav, our, our, our boss has commented, like Mike's longevity and, and the kind of character that he was, he has influenced the lives of so many. So even those who were not victims directly, are now wrestling probably with their own faith and go, well, he was so influential on me. I maybe went forward at an event. Maybe I came to faith through Soul Survivor and the conferences, or maybe it was a significant step in my journey. Is that all up for doubt? I'm going to say, no, those were connections with God and encounters with God in that moment, but they were made through a failed human being. But inevitably something's hooked to that. So it's really difficult to process and it's going to take time for people. And that is part of what's so tragic about these moments is, is it's not just the immediacy of what they did, but the long-term impacts and the ripple effects. So, you know, I think we're processing on a number of different levels for the victims, for those who are still involved in the church of soul survivor, for the wider Christian community coming to terms with this and trying to learn how to do the process better. I think it's probably worth saying this one has been reasonably quick 
And there's definitely been some bumps along the way, but I think overall been reasonably well handled. And as soon as they felt they could, they have gone public and said the claims have been substantiated, as you said, Danny. So they've done their best, I think, to to honour the victims and run a, a robust process, one that has come to conclusion within a kind of timely fashion. And we're going to have to learn and build from there as the wider church, as the evangelical community, for sure. And one of the one of the aspects that has been explored is I might have actually was one of the best known Christian speakers and figures in the UK. It's been pointed out that Michael Navachi was a director of the Evangelical Alliance between 1998 and 2000. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, look, the Evangelical Alliance has a council of approximately, the numbers are varied, but currently it's like 70 odd people. And so back in the day, all those council members, which was kind of representative across the evangelical world of the UK as best we could, they were all directors of the Evangelical Alliance. It's a slightly unwieldy governance model, but that's what it was. So Mike was a director along with, I don't know the exact numbers, but somewhere in the region of 70 other people during those couple of years. And inevitably, because of who he was within the evangelical world, there will be ties to us at EA. Uh, that, that's absolutely true. Nobody knew anything about what was going on during that period. And for almost everybody, these matters really only came to light. And I think it was 2021, was it when they started being reported? Now, the big question is what was being reported behind the scenes and who knew what when. And rightly, that's what I think Fiona Scolding, the, the lawyer who's been appointed, is going to look at. And we need to. We're not aware of anything within EA. Mike absolutely did serve in that period. That's on the public record. And and. You know, we need to reflect on that, but there's nothing we knew at the time. But that's what that process means. He was a council and, and, member of EA. And we changed our governance in 2000 to, so that it wasn't the group of 60 or 70 people who were directors. And instead, it's just a, a smaller board of 14 or 15 people. Alicia, as you've heard this news over the last few months, how have you, how have you felt about it? How have you responded? I mean, it's definitely been tough to observe. I think the Twitter space has been quite harsh, I would say, as an onlooker, that if you're not saying or commenting in any version of your connection to Soul Survivor, whether you were an attendee or an intern or worked with Mike, that you know that you somehow are complicit in this. And I think the key takeaway for me as we've come to these conclusions and, and kind of moving forward is how do you distinguish between the ministry and the individual? And I think it's important to make that distinction. Soul Survivor played a very strong role and influence in my life when I was at university. I went to many of the festivals, went to many of the kind of prayer gatherings, been coming alongside other young people of faith from across the UK, and being encouraged that there are actual Christians that long to love Jesus in their local context inspired me to keep going when I very much wanted to kind of be of the world in the world and kind of loosely be a nominal cultural Christian. So for me, just looking back on my own faith experience with Soul Survivor, it it's shaped me positively. And to say that isn't to undermine the reality of where we find ourselves today, that there's been an investigation and that what has taken place under Mike's uh, leadership is called under question and he himself has stepped down and, and all that's come um, to that. So for me, it's been a hard one to navigate, um, but I think where I'm landing is how can I value the ministry of Soul Survivor and how it played an important part in my discipleship and spiritual formation 
whilst also recognizing that there needs to be accountability and leadership and I don't need to throw away everything that's happened or it has come out of Soul Survivor. So I guess that's my own personal reflections at the moment. Like I would, I would feel very similar. I, in the corner of the church I grew up with in non-denominational charismatic churches, Soul Survivor was a big deal. Now it is within Anglican structures, but it's reaches far broader than that. I went many years, I took groups of students to Momentum. Um, when I was a student, I was on the team at Soul Survivor helping to run some of the seminar programs. And I, I, I think that's why I have found this quite challenging because for myself and for other people I know, it was such a significant feature in our mm-hmm. journey in terms of knowing Jesus, in terms of growing in relationship, whether it's, first encounters with the the Holy Spirit, um, whether it's calls to ministry or to particular vocations. Soul Survivor was a place that for a lot of people was a significant marker in their Christian journey. And and I think that's how people are then navigating this and trying to wrestle with how can something that has been so beneficial have been, had something so problematic Mm. at its heart. And and I and one of the, one of the other things I've reflected on over the last couple of months, and some of the stories about wrestling in underwear have, for obvious reasons, attracted the media headlines. But I think the aspects that have resounded for me and that I see echoes of in different church contexts are the challenges that many young leaders have found in different church contexts where they have been given opportunities where they've been promoted where they've been offered the kind of the patronage of senior leaders but then it's been taken away and sometimes without reason sometimes without explanation sometimes it's been done in harsh ways and I think that's some of what we've heard that's come out and I've seen that in different ways in greater or lesser extents in different church contexts but I think there are quite a lot of people who hear what's gone on and they are oh, actually this is something I can recognize. And I think one of the challenges going forward is helping people who are hurting from what they've experienced, whether it was in Soul Survivor or in other church contexts. How can we help people who are going through a process of asking questions about their faith, of deconstructing some of the things that have been significant to them, and then helping them to reconstruct it on the person of Jesus? And how do we help people to interrogate what they have experienced and interrogate what they have seen, but to not allow that to be a thing that causes them to lose faith? Like, I think there's so much we have to learn and address. There's so much we have to do in terms of improving the the accountability of leaders. It's it's not something, I think there, there is more for this investigation to look at, and we need to ensure that that does its role well. I think we have to ask questions about how we platform people. I I think actually we are already getting a bit better. We're not so inclined to making Christian leaders into celebrities. I think that is something we need to continue to ask questions about. I think we also need to continue to pray for those, pray for those who've been directly affected by this, who have been, who've worked in South Survivor, who were in the intern programs who had a, a, a harmful experience. I think we also need to pray for people within the, the Soul Survivor Church now. I, I'm conscious that for a lot of people there, this is their, this is their church. Mm. If I'm feeling the impact of this from someone who's only experienced this 
at a distance. Actually, for some people who are closer, I think we need to pray and we need to pray for others who are in leadership in that context, that they can provide godly, Christ-honouring leadership that will help people to focus on Jesus, but also to navigate what's going on. Yeah, I think I totally agree, Danny. I think the platforming personality and the power dynamic. So a lot of this really does come down to power and we kind of confuse charisma with the charismatic as in the Holy Spirit and the character that's needed around that. And we have to wrestle like now with the authority and accountability questions. So a lot of people want to claim authority without the accountability. And Soul Survivor, there were four paid staff out of nine directors at one point. Some red flags that should have, you know, immediately gone, oh, there, there's some problems as to how things are set up. And yet at the same time, how do we navigate that leaders can disciple people? You know, take an obvious one, like whether it's watching pornography or excessive drinking, to be able to say, hold on, that is a problem. You can't lead and do that. We want to disciple you into a better way of living. And that not, you know, the, the risk is almost in any kind of direction is seen as problematic. And we need to hold the line on that. And I think you're right, Danny, I think you mentioned reconstructing. I totally agree. There is a deconstruction that we see that's actually healthy. So that word scares some people, but I think we see Jesus essentially using the Old Testament to deconstruct a lot of what the Pharisees have done, what they've built on top of the religion that they've added that is unhelpful. And if we understand it in that way, it is literally pulling apart the unhelpful extra 700 odd rules that they've added on. What we never see Jesus embracing is using culture to deconstruct the Bible. And that's too often what people mean by deconstruction. I think that's a really unhealthy journey, but we rightly need to deconstruct some of the language, some of the patterns that are built up around this charismatic evangelical movement in this particular case, but in other places within the church. And the faith centered in Jesus is so important. It's always going to be mediated to some degree. All of us come to faith through other people and we have mentors and ministers and people in our lives. But if we place too much onus on those mediators in whatever shape and form, the Mike Pilavachis and others, then we will be absolutely at sea when something goes wrong. But ultimately, you know, we do need to center on Jesus, the perfect and truest human being, and have that relationship as directly as possible with him. The, the encounter that he offers us, always in community and a breadth of people in community. And that's what builds some of that accountability and responsibility. And Gav said it, we're going to have to look more systemically as a church at some of the structures we built recently that are unhealthy, that are profiled and platformed to one individual and ways in which we go after character and build long-term relationships that are fundamentally different and at odds with the kind of consumer-driven shirts that's all around us. So there are big conversations to be had and Mike's sadly not going to be the last of those. Um, and, and so there are, there are definitely more tough conversations to have. Well, that brings us towards the end of this episode of cross section well just a reminder if you want to join us for our time to talk webinar on the 25th of september we'll be looking at relationships and sex education in particular how do we talk about our bodies with ed drew from faith in kids you can sign up on the evangelical alliance website and the link will be in the podcast notes well thank you for listening and i hope you join us for the rest of our rest of our season Bye-bye. Hi, it's Peter here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Cross Section. If you liked it, can I encourage you to click subscribe, review the podcast, share the episode on social media, or tell your friends so that they can enjoy it too. And don't forget, you can email us at cross.section at eauk.org. See you next time.